1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 21. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit, and we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. This is the very word of God. We began a series last week, just four short weeks, on the subject of communion with God. And we noted last week that this is a more important of a subject than you might at first think because it involves not just your personal experiences with God, but it involves actually our gospel witness into the world. It involves and affects our evangelism the gospel that we proclaim. You see, communion with God is the treasure that all of us possess or ought to possess in light of our union with Christ. Communion with God sets us free to proclaim Jesus as good news rather than ourselves. So our evangelism, our gospel witness, is not about converting people to us, to our cultural preferences, not even to our own Christian convictions. It is about inviting people to come with us into fellowship with Christ, into fellowship with God. Now, why would anybody want to come with us into communion with God? What is the gospel appeal? What, what, what should make people say, yeah, that sounds good, I want that? We need to be careful here because the appeal ought to be this fellowship, this communion with God that is ours by virtue of our union with Christ. The appeal of our evangelism must not be to simply escape 
the wrath of God. That's not good enough. That's not good enough news. Because, well, it's simply not our main message. It cannot be our main message. We're in 1 John chapter 4, but 1 John chapter 1, the apostle begins his book like this. He speaks of that which we proclaim. What is the message that we have to say? He speaks of what we have seen and heard. And obviously he's speaking of Jesus, but he calls him the eternal life. And then he says this, we are writing this letter, 1 John, what we're looking at today, we are writing this letter so that you too may have fellowship, communion, with us. And truly, he says, it's a fellowship with the Father and with the Son. And we are writing this to you. This is, the, this is the appeal. This is the gospel appeal. So that you can have fellowship with us and our joy would be complete. So do you see the difference in our evangelism? We evangelize. We preach the good news to people because we want people to come with us into fellowship with God, which would complete our joy. This is what communion with God is all about. It's why we gather for worship. It's why we gather in missional families in our homes. It's the, it's the center of everything that we believe and have to offer to the world as Christians. So if we don't have this fellowship, if we don't know this communion with God, if this is a foreign idea to you, or if you have a mistaken idea of what communion with God is all about, then our gospel witness is hindered. Why would anyone want to join us? I mean, just think of when you are in a new city and you're trying to find a restaurant to go to. What do you do? Well, maybe some of you do. That's what I do. You look at the reviews, right? Is this a good place to go? What do people have to say about it? And so it is. With our Christian faith, why would anybody want to come? Why would anybody want to join us in the pursuit of God through Jesus Christ? So my aim in this series is to help us all pursue this joyful communion with God, which, as we saw last week, is your right as one who has been united to God through Christ and which is also what your neighbor desperately needs, needs you to have experience, and enjoy. So now, that was all introduction from last week. How do we begin? What do we do with this subject of communion with God? Well, the great English Puritan John Owen wrote a book called Communion with God. I've been reading it. It's not an easy read. You need a good editor to read John Owen. But one of the great contributions that John Owen made to the subject of how do we enjoy this fellowship with God is he pointed out that because God is Trinity, because God is triune, there are distinct ways, peculiar ways, in which we can enjoy fellowship with God with each of the distinct persons within the Trinity. Now, this doesn't mean, of course, that these peculiar ways that we enjoy communion with God the Father, or God the Son, or God the Holy Spirit means that only with that person do we enjoy that kind of fellowship or that joy of part of communion. But the Bible tends to emphasize specific ways for each one of the persons that we enjoy fellowship. And so we begin on Father's Day 
with the first person of the Trinity, God the Father, and the distinct way that we are to enjoy fellowship with God the Father is in his love, in his love. So this morning, I want to speak to you about the love, communing with God the Father in his love. From this passage, 1 John 4, chapter, or verses 7 to 21, we see the claim of the Father's love, the evidence for it, our reception of it, and our display of it. The claim of the Father's love, the evidence for it, our reception of it, and then our display of it. So we begin with the explicit claim of the Father's love. It's a well-known biblical claim made twice, very explicitly in our passage this morning. Verse 8 and verse 16 both say, God is love. And when it says God here, the fact that it is the Father's love specifically in view is clear when you compare verse 9 with verse 14. The love of God was made manifest when God the Father sent his only son into the world. So here again the claim. God, specifically here in view, God the Father is love. So as we say, the Bible probably, there's no way, it could be more explicit. It's a straightforward statement. And God the Father could not want a clearer understanding in your mind and mine of who he is and what he is like than with those simple three words. God is love. So when we think of God the Father, you know, many people have a hard time thinking of him that way. Don't they? I mean, I've often heard it said, well, when we see the Son, when we turn to the New Testament, there we see a God of love. But the Father, most particularly defined, known as love, have you read your Old Testament? We are told. Probably there is a better word that would define his basic demeanor. Read the Bible, especially the Old Testament, and you might conclude that God the Father is Stern, or maybe even God is angry. The psalmist, after all, I just read this this morning, can say in Psalm 90, verse 9, that we live all of our days passing away under your wrath. Saying such things about God makes it hard to think of God the Father the way that John describes him here. However, it is, of course, of the nature of love to hate all that opposes and threatens genuine love. So the prophet Amos can say that God hates evil precisely because he loves what is good. God is angry at sin, not because sin is a mere annoyance like so many things that easily set you and me off. God's Anger and God's wrath are set against what is truly evil, and sin is defined as all the actions and attitudes, all the intentions and motives that are set steadfastly against the abundance and flourishing that ought to flow from a world that God made 
in love. So when we read our Bibles, and when we think of our theology, we need to have this settled definitively in our minds, that God is love. And when we read the Bible and see verses like Malachi 1, 2, and 3, also cited in Romans 9, 13, where God says he loved Jacob but hated Esau, we need to know how to read those verses, understanding them in light of God's covenant promises made to Israel, that is, to Jacob, that would then in turn become available to Esau and all the other nations of the world through Israel. God does not love some, but turn his nose up at everyone else. Clearly, in terms of how the two sons of Isaac behaved, neither one of them deserved God's love or did something that endeared themselves to him by their actions. It is God's love for Jacob, not his wrath, directed against the evil of Esau that is a shock, a surprise. And this love for Jacob as well as this hatred of Esau cannot be understood simply in terms of human emotions. Rather, we need to see the entire scope of the biblical story in which God, by his covenant love for Israel, intends for his love to extend to every person on the planet. And then as we read along the biblical story, we see that God the Father is adamant. Adamant. Like, again, there's, there's nothing he wants more for you to get straight in your mind than that he is fundamentally love. Again, God is love. Got it? 29 times in our passage this morning, we find the word for love, and it all originates, stems from the antecedent love of God for us. It's simply who God is. It's what most defines his nature. And those who wish to have communion with God really must come to know this about him and have it settled in their minds. If you want to enjoy communion with God, there can be no doubt, no question that this is who God is fundamentally. Set your heart on it, brothers and sisters. Regardless of your circumstances and your experiences, you cannot hold communion with God if you say, I don't know if he loves. But plenty of us do that, don't we? especially when it comes to God the Father. It's a major problem that must be overcome. This is not incidental to the Christian faith. This is central. It's a major problem. Whatever your trouble is about the Father's love, whatever it is this morning that is causing you to question or doubt or not be so convinced, John Owen writes in his book, you can trouble God no more than by your unkindness and not believing it. John Owen says, the thing that you can do to most trouble God the Father is to doubt his love. God, it seems, is the one who is at pains to make it clear to the world that he is love. So, he does more than just make the claim. He provides evidence. 
the evidence that's needed to substantiate his claim. Because you know how it goes. Words are words. I mean, they're not unimportant, but they're also not all important. To say I love you to someone is important. I commend it to you. You got a dad this morning? Call him, hug him, and say the words. That's all I want, by the way, for Father's Day. Just want my kids to say I love you and be nice to me for a day. That's it. Pretty simple. But, of course, the actions must match the words or the words will not be believed. Yes? For God to say, I am love is one thing, but God needs to provide the evidence for us to believe it. In fact, when God says to Israel in Malachi 1-2, I have loved you, their reply is the one that some of you have said, oh, really? How have you loved me? There has to be evidence of love or the claim of love is invalidated and nullified. But the problem is when we look around us, when you look at your own life and take stock, some of you will say that the evidence is not that compelling. With Israel and Malachi 1, we ask, how have you loved us? So let's just think of it for a moment. Come on, you're Christians, but you need to, you need to put yourself a little, a little skeptical for just a moment. What would you expect that the world and your own life would look like if truly the great sovereign God of all loved you? You've asked that question. I know you have. Some of you have said it out loud. The rest of us have said it in our hearts. When you find yourself in times of great suffering and sorrow, when misery and despair sets in, you've asked what so many people have asked. If God loves us so much, why is there so much pain? Why is there so much suffering? How do you answer the question? Well, one way to answer the question goes something like this. God is good and God is love, but the risk that God must take in order to have a world of goodness and love is the freedom for his creatures to choose otherwise. And since human beings chose otherwise and sinned against God, this is why the world is marked and marred by evil and suffering, which have compromised in our minds, the clear-headed view of God's love. That's the explanation. What do you think? It, it sounds biblical, sounds reasonable, but if that's kind of your answer, if that's the, the evidence you give to substantiate the love of God and the reality of pain and evil and suffering in the world, well then, let's just allow a well-known humanist and atheist to set us straight on the argument. Probably a risky thing for a preacher to do, but here I go. Stephen Law, who teaches philosophy at the University of Oxford, contradicts this explanation with what he has famously called the evil God challenge. He says, well, what if it's the other way around? What if the one true God who's sovereign over all and who created all things is actually an evil God? What if... God is love is absolutely false, and actually God is hate. Well, then what kind of world would we expect 
What kind of reality would we experience in our own lives if the evil God is the one true God? Wouldn't we expect, the argument goes, that the world would look like a horrible torture chamber with evil and nothing but evil to be seen? And yet nobody believes in the evil God hypothesis. You know why? Because there's too much good. There's too much love. There's too much beauty in the world. The evil God theory just isn't believed because of the problem of good. Law, therefore, the the philosopher, of course, doesn't conclude, well, then there must be a God who is loving and who is good. He simply shows with his evil God challenge that the defense of a good God against the problem of evil on the basis of human free will would work in exactly the opposite scenario. One could explain the problem of evil for evil God on the basis of human freedom in which many people simply use that freedom to do good against evil God's wishes. So we're back at square one. We need a better explanation. God has to give better evidence precisely because the world that we live in is marred and marked with pain and evil and suffering. Some of you know it firsthand. So for Stephen Law, this means that the problem of evil remains a real obstacle in affirming faith in the existence of God at all, much less in a God who is defined by love. We need more evidence. What's the evidence? How does God back up the claim? Well, here's what our text says in verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest. Do you see it? This is how God has evidenced, has backed up his claim. This is it. Verse 9, God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And then verse 10, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, if you want evidence for the God of love, then as Christians, we say along with John, you have to start with Jesus of Nazareth. This is simply the best evidence that there is and can be for the Father's love. Because, you see, if this God exists, and if the main thing to be said about him is that he is love, then the primary question that must be answered is not, well, then how could he allow there to be evil and suffering in his world, the primary question is, what's he going to do about it? If this God of love exists, then he cannot simply stand by when evil and sin and suffering invade his good world. If good God, loving God exists, then he's got to act. He's got to do something about it. He has to get involved He has to get his hands dirty, which is exactly what he did. He sent his son, verse 10 says, to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, there's your theological word for the day, propitiation. It it simply means, and most English translations do it this way, it means a sacrifice that atones for sins. And of course, how this atonement works is a massive subject in biblical and theological studies, but One thing is clear, 
It's the only point that we need to know for our today. The Christian claim is that Jesus himself, the real historical person, Jesus of Nazareth, is the sacrifice that atones for sins. And that is the evidence of the Father's love. So this morning, we sang a song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. And I hope that when you sing that song, you are not discouraged from sensing the depths of the Father's love when you consider the atonement of Christ on the cross. I I hope that when you think of God sending his son to be the atoning sacrifice, the propitiation for our sins, you do not think of this atoning sacrifice primarily as a sign of how much God hates sin and is angry about it. I hope you think of it instead primarily of how much God loves sinners and manifests his love for them. We need to get this right in our thinking if we're going to have communion with God. Yes, we may often be tempted to feel like God doesn't love us. Our suffering can lead us to that cliff. I mean, it did for Jesus. When he cried out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know what that is, don't you? You've you've cried that out, some of you. It's the cry of distress in the midst of real suffering. Those words of Jesus crying out from the cross are a direct quote, of course, from Psalm 22.1. But Jesus, Jesus knew the entire scope of that psalm. He knew the assurance that comes in verse 24 that his father had, in fact, not hidden his face from him, but was, in fact, right there, sustaining him in his suffering with his steadfast love. So the song that we sing has that phrase, the father turned his face away. But do not take that to mean that the father rejected his son on the cross. Do you know what that would mean? If that's how you think of how atonement works, you got a major problem. Because the atonement, the sacrifice that atones for our sins, if it's gonna do you any good, can't be rejected by the Father, it has to be accepted. As our sin offering, the Father accepted the sacrifice of his Son, which is why, as verse 9 says here in 1 John, we can now live through him. Hallelujah. The cross is the evidence that there is a God who is love. How do we know? Because he doesn't stand by as the world he made crumbles in evil and suffering and sin. He does something about it. He sends his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins so that instead of death, there would be life in the world that he made. Now, when it comes then to our communion with God, we got to go further. We've talked about the claim that God makes, God is love. The evidence for that claim is God sent his son into the world to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins that we can live 
through him. Now, we need to receive it. The God who is love has given evidence of his love by sending his son into the world to give us life, to rescue us from death forever. Now, we, we got to take that in. We got we to open our arms, open our hands, and receive it. How do we do it? Verse 15 says, whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Now, there's your, there's your receiving it says then that the way we receive is we confess, we, we affirm, we accept that Jesus is the Son of God. That's the basic statement of a Christian creed. It's what unites all Christians everywhere. Jesus is the Son of God. That is to say, as we talked about last week, he is Lord. To be the Son of God means to be the the Messiah, the the anointed one. The one who is, as we saw last week, the authorized representative of God himself on earth. It, It is to be literally the Lord, the king of all that there is. Now, in the first century, when that creed was the confession of the first Christians, Jesus is the Son of God, Jesus is Lord, that claim stood out starkly against the claim of the day. The Caesars of Rome considered themselves to be the Son of God, the authorized representative of God on earth. And if you did not confess that, that is, you didn't accept it. That would be bad news for you in the first century. Romans were ruthless. You make a claim that anyone else is Lord, someone else is a son of God, you're putting your life at risk. This basic confession that Jesus is the son of God, that Jesus is Lord, is is much easier to make in our culture today. But that's simply because it has lost so much of its meaning and its implications. You see, in the first century, your confession of who was Lord was a matter of life and death. If you did not swear allegiance to Caesar, you were viewed with great suspicion. You were considered a national threat. You would be guilty of treason. By the way, this is why the Jews were such a threat to the empire of Rome. You read Roman history, and there's just this people, the the Jews, who are constantly under suspicion and and a problem. Now, eventually, here's simply why. They, They were monotheists, creational monotheists. We have one God. It's not you. Now, eventually, Caesar was forced to strike a deal with the Jews. All right, here's the deal. I'll let you continue to just say that your God is God just so long as you pray to your God that he will bring success to the empire. If you do that, you can have your religion. 
Brothers and sisters, secularism has struck that deal with us today. No one really cares if you confess Jesus is Lord so long as your confession doesn't really mean very much. Just keep it to yourself and your own private religious practice. Don't let it spill out into the public arena. Don't bring that stuff into the workplace and definitely don't bring it into your politics. And many of us in the church have gone right along with it. In exchange for peace in society, we've kept our mouths shut, barely letting our lips move once a week to make the confession, I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. We've played along with the lie that secularism is some sort of neutral, free of any ideology confession. We've bought into the lie that Neutrality means the impossible idea of living with no religion. And the end result is the multiplication of secular gods shoved right down our throats in our workplaces and our, in our schools. All right, I'm fired up this morning. Let's do something about it. Let's get mad and angry and fire back. Let's own the libs and let's show them who's boss. You ready? Well, okay, got to finish the sermon first, so let's get to verse 16. So, we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Oh, no. Oh, wait. If we receive the Father's love, if we have truly come to know and believe it, then did you see what it says? You have to abide in it. Genuine Christian faith must reflect our belief in Jesus as love incarnate. It's the badge that we must wear before the watching world. And since the Father is love and the Son is love incarnate, we simply must be concerned that our testimony comes wrapped in the same love. So lastly, consider the display of the Father's love. John Owen points out in his book that if we're going to have communion with God, there, there has to be a receiving and then a response, a, a, a giving back, as it were, an exchange. Now, not a repayment. Love doesn't work that way. Genuine love doesn't keep a tally and say, well, they, you know, they wrote me, uh, or I sent them a Christmas card. Did I get one back? Comes from experience, sorry. Um, that's not what love does. There's no keeping the score even. The Bible speaks of love as 
outdo one another in love. No keep it score, just pour it out abundantly. John, in this passage, is so concerned with that as well. I mean, you, I don't think when, when Susan was reading that, I don't see how you could miss it. I mean, it just almost, it almost silences you when you hear these words. Verse 7 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And verse 8 says it more starkly, in case you didn't get the point. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Because God is love. Um, students of New Testament Greek often begin with the writings of John because he kind of writes with the easiest Greek. It's pretty easy to read in Greek. But whoa, those are powerful words, don't they? They almost take your breath away. Let's look at it. We who say we know God have to be known as lovers. Is that a reputation? All right, men, dads, start in your home. According to Ephesians 5, you are specifically commanded to be the leaders of love. Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. There it is. Start in your homes. But in this text, the emphasis here is loving brothers and sisters. It moves next, quite naturally, to the Christian extended family, to your church family, to your Christian community, and ask yourself very simple questions. How do you display the love of the Father, the kind of love that God has shown you? How would you show that? What would it look like to show that kind of love to your brothers and sisters? Do I need to get specific? Do I need to make application this straightforwardly? In your home church, if you love your brothers and sisters, what do you do? Maybe show up. I, just, I don't know. That might matter. Serve. Sacrifice. Lay your life down. It's the family of God. You confessed a moment ago in the Apostles' Creed, we believe in the Holy Catholic Church. So we look at the extended family of God, even beyond your own church family. And when it comes to our brothers and sisters who are worshiping God all over this planet in different tongues, different languages, different cultures, you better be careful of thinking that real Christians Act like you and you, the way you worship and how it looks in your church. We listen. We show compassion. We seek unity. We never take delight in separation of Christians from one another. It's a mark against us. We all admit it. I don't have all the answers out of this, but I'm just, I'm a, I am a little fired up this morning. And I'm concerned about the press, the negative press about our churches in light of what happened in New Orleans this week, there should be no delight, no celebration, no joy when there is separation. 
It's sad, and it's a shame, and it should pain us all, not make us celebrate. And it extends even further into the world. There's no doubt, even though John's view here is the Christian community, that again, he has our evangelistic strategy here in mind. We should be known as lovers, period, full stop. So we look at our neighbors and the people around us and we say, how can we show love to them? I'm so convicted about this. This is something God's been stirring up in my own heart that on New Creation Monday, I stood right here and I said, here's my new creation idea. I'm going to, I'm go- and if you don't know what any of that's about, ask somebody later. Uh, I'm going to grow tomatoes. And then I'm going to give them, at least some of them, to my neighbors. And this week, I took four of my lovely, beautiful tomatoes. And by the way, there's nothing better than a homegrown tomato, a little salt and pepper, or a little sourdough bread, butter on that thing. Yeah, I may have tried that this week. Uh, there's nothing, boy, and I took these, these beauties, and I don't know if my, I'm not going to get many more out of them. I'm a terrible gardener. And I took them over to one of my neighbors that I don't see very much. We don't interact a whole lot. I don't know them very well. And I gave them to her. And I told her my story of why I was doing this. New creation, she sat there and listened. I don't know if she understood. And I said, I just think that God wants you to know he made a wonderful world. He puts you in it because you matter. That God loves you. And she gave me a hug. What if this is the way our evangelism was marked rather than anger and fury? We seek the peace with the world through God's love. Now, how do you do all this? i got to wrap this up. I know for some of us, this feels like a burden. feels impossible. Well, just see what John says in verse 19. We love because he first loved us. You better get that straight. You better get that straight. This is a prerequisite to love flowing out into the world Because the kind of love that we are called to evidence in the world is what Paul calls the fruit of the Spirit. You remember this? The fruit of the Spirit is, first one, and I knew the first one to say it would be right here. Thanks, Clyde. Look at verse 13. Verse 13 says, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his, got your face in the Bible, of his spirit. Self-produced love is an imposter to God's life-giving love and will, and will in the end only result in death. You do not sit and, say and soak in the love of God for you than the love that you think you're showing in your home or in your neighborhood or into the world or in your politics will bring death, not life. Here's how it works. Verse 12. No one has ever seen God. John 1.18 says, Jesus made the invisible God known. The only way to know who God is and what he is like is found in Jesus. You begin there. So then, here in verse 12, no one has ever seen God. But then he says this. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. The only way the world can know who God is is when they see the love of God in Christ manifested in us the way God showed it to us in the first place. 
As Jesus unveiled God before a surprised and unready world, so so must we. Love is that important. And this love, verse 17 says, that is produced by the Spirit is a fearless love. And when you see it in you, when you begin to see the love of God so overcoming you that it flows out, then it will lead to the assurance of God's own love. It will bring it to full circle, bring it to completion in your life. Now, I realize that this sermon may have done the opposite in your heart, and I'm really concerned about that. For some of you, it may have produced fear rather than fearlessness. You may say, I have not shown that love. I can't show that love. I am powerless to show that love. You don't know who I am, my personality, my, my flaws. How do you answer that, Ben? It's not to avoid saying what the text says. I'm not going to say, well, never mind. God doesn't really care that you display that love. Oh, you bet he cares. He requires it. He demands it. But instead, my response is to invite you into a deep, invite you to come deeper, come a little deeper into the love of God in Christ. It cannot be a hobby. It cannot be just a private religion, but rather a whole life reality through which you see everything. As one New Testament scholar says, God has taken us utterly seriously. How can we not do the same with him? So step in a little deeper into the love of God. Where we go from here is risky, I admit. But it's a risk we must take. But take heart. You are in a company of brothers and sisters who want to take the risk with you. The risk of communing with God the Father in his love. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we come before you amazed. Oh, how you have loved us. A God who sees all things, knows all things, sees and knows us like we've never been seen or known before. It's unsettling. But his decisive word over us is, I love you. The Father turned his face away from the Son, only if that can be taken to mean it was the turning away of love. He was in sorrow. He felt the pain of the suffering of sin. He got his hands dirty. But praise be to God, he did not despise. He did not reject the atoning sacrifice. He received it. He accepted it. It was his evidence, the the evidence that backs up the claim of his love. And this is, the, this is the power that literally transforms the world. So may we step into it a little deeper this morning. May we come to know in Jesus Christ the deep love of God for us. We ask for this grace in Jesus' name. Amen. For those of you who've doubted that God the Father loves you like that, come to Christ. In Jesus Christ,